You're listening to Stream of Conscience, Beckett's Religious Liberty Podcast. I'm Katie Geary. And I'm Angela Wu Howard. In this episode, we're talking about a church that operated a dynamic homeless ministry in Southern California. Until the city decided to shut it down. What could the church do? Team up with some fresh new law students at Stanford's Religious Liberty Clinic and take their case all the way to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. When I came to the Harbor Church, it was 2007. Um, it was a it was a church in transition. That's Sam Gallucci. After spending his first career in the tech world, he was called to become a pastor. He found himself in Ventura, California, at Harbor Missionary Church. They were looking for a new senior pastor and. And I was in a season of transition myself, um, and uh, as, it, as it would be, God connected us together and became their pastor. Beginning of the year, I started to pray, you know, God, what is this church to be about? And um, that time, the city of Ventura had been gathering pastors of churches of all different faith distinctives and asking for help to uh, engage in the homeless crisis in the city of Ventura. This was uh, 2008. Um, They were uh, in the beginning stage of a 10-year plan to help end homelessness in the city, and uh, there was quite a crisis. Pastor Sam found the answer to his prayers right in front of him. So that call really uh, to the churches by the city really resonated to me, and as we we prayed about it as a community, it, it really fit our DNA you know, as a, not only as a Christian church, but us personally. So Pastor Sam and his congregation began what would become a long journey of service to those most in need, their homeless brothers and sisters. We went out on the streets trying to figure out how could we really make a difference? There were several hundred homeless in the park right across the street from some of the wealthiest areas of, to visit. And I remember as I walked around early on, it, um, I was overwhelmed. And uh, what really uh, gripped me were two things. One, I remember seeing this young man, his name was Kenneth. He was 12 years old and uh, his mother was lost, um, was clearly an addict. I mean, everything about her behavior and um, her expressions, uh, she, was, she was quite addicted to, uh, turned out to be uh, crystal meth. And I remember her feeding it to her 12-year-old son. And no one was doing anything about it. And, uh, and I remember just feeling this call rise up in me, we have to make a difference. One day I met uh, my wife and I and a few of our congregation members um, met Melissa. Melissa was a, at that point, 30-year-old young girl. You could tell that Life had taken its toll on this young lady. Um, and uh, she uh, she called out to me. She goes, hey, you. I go, who, me? Yeah, you, come over here. So I walk over to her and she goes, why are you here? And I go, well, I'm, you know, Pastor Sam and I'm here to share uh, about the hope of our faith. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what they all say. That's what they all say. And you probably want me to say, hey, praise the Lord. But if you really loved us, if you really wanted to share your faith, you'd invite us in your home.
And that just wrecked me. I, I remember thinking to myself, wow, you know, we're out here and we were doing pretty much what traditionally most of us all did. Went out there on the streets and handed food out and tried to share hope of, you know, faith to get them to believe that their life had purpose and meaning. And yet our homes were not places for them. So I got to thinking about it. I said, you know, we'll come tomorrow with our van and we'll take you to our home. And uh, so the next day we pulled up in our van and there Melissa, her two pit bulls and uh, her three uh, friends, all of them tats, they were all tatted up, you know, uh, spikes and everything else. And they load in the van and we go to the church. And our church was three buildings in a square with a courtyard in the middle. So we rolled in and they sat down on the uh, patio furniture we had in the courtyard out of sight and they fell asleep. And I, we looked at each other and said, well, what do we do now? And then we just let them sleep. So then they woke up and they said, do you have anything to eat? And so we didn't have much, we're a small congregation. We grabbed some peanut butter and jelly and bread and we gave them some food. And, and they looked at us and they said, thank you, can we come back tomorrow? So we said, sure. This simple act of inviting the homeless into their midst changed Harbor's ministry. Their church became a gathering place for the city's homeless, and they quickly discovered that they needed to make some changes. So each day they'd come and they, you know, uh, hey, do you have any place to take a shower? And we, we didn't have showers. We said, we can handle that. And so we put showers in. And then uh, one day they said, can we do our laundry here? No, but we can take care of that. And we went on Craigslist and got to use washer and dryer and put it in a corner and let them do their laundry. And um, any way we can get some clothes. And we came from a very, very wealthy community. Uh, that was our background in the church that I was on staff at. It was in a very affluent area about 15 miles away. So we went to our friends and next thing you know, we had Gucci and Armani, you know, clothes and, and tons of clothes. And we started a, a free uh, clothing pantry. And then we had to give it a name because each day we picked up uh, Melissa, more people came. And literally within 30 days, we had 40, 50 people coming to our church. We would pick them up, we would bring them, and they would come. And we practiced our faith in a way that very much Jesus declared was a model that um, reminded us that it was him we were caring for. And, and as we cared for those people, it reminded us of how he cares for us. That's the beauty of that model. So we need, needed to give it a name. And um, we said, you know, this is a special assignment. We're not enabling people. We're really embracing them. We were talking about it. And I said, that's it, embrace. So let's call it Operation Embrace. And so Operation Embrace began. And uh, it became a midweek church. It became church. And it grew three times the size of our Sunday congregation. And we realized, you know what? The idea that church is every day of the week is really true here at, at, at the harbor. Um, we called ourselves the harbor. And uh, Operation Embrace was church. Pastor Sam described the population who came to harbor as chronic homeless or extreme homeless. They were people who the rest of society had completely written off as beyond help. And yet, Harbor opened its doors to them, and they came. None of them woke up one day and said, I know, I want to be homeless. That's what I want to do. 
I want to live my life on the streets the rest of my life and be treated like a pig. That's what I want, not one of them. And yet we live in a society where we think, you know, they chose that, those bums, you know, they could have gotten off the street. It's their own fault they're there. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every single one of those people that are on the streets, they have a story. They have a devastating story that caused it. And once you're there, there's really no way out without help. There's no way out. Uh, you have no address, no address, no job, period, end of story. You're not, you're not going to get any work if you don't have an address. No one will hire you if you don't have an address. Um, you do develop mental illness. I, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to lose everything, then lose your respect, lose your dignity, be treated not like a human being, ignored by society, People walk by you every day and don't even, you know, acknowledge you exist. Um, what that what that would do for me? What that would do for you? You know, for many of them, I would say for all of them, they tried many times, and they have gotten so crushed that um, they've just stopped trying. They've stopped believing, and that's at the center of it. Is when you stop believing, when you stop believing, your very life has no value. You stop living, and so. This was truly our religious practice. We, um, we would see people get their life back together. We would see them uh, delivered from alcohol and drug abuse. We would see them uh, reignite with their family. We saw incredible miracles in this church. Every walk of life, I, the stories are unending. I can tell you hundreds of stories. Remember, the city had put out a call for churches to help them with this massive problem of homelessness. Pastor Sam was answering that call, and so were other churches. They were making great progress. And the whole Harbor Ministry for the Homeless was volunteer and donation-based. People came from all over to help the ministry. We were blown away by what God was doing. And the community was involved. Every day we would pray and food would come. Pastor Sam led Operation Embrace successfully for five years. But then things changed. Things were going well. The city was working with us. They saw the value of, our, of what we were doing, and they even gave us grants for food. And we had a lot of favor with the city. We had a lot of favor with the community. But then in 2012, there was an election year, and there was a new city council elected, and the mayor of the city had a very different strategy about how to care for the homeless. There were four places in the city where food was, uh, was distributed daily, four feeding centers. Three were soup kitchens, and then there, were, there was us. And so uh, a task force from the city came to each of those agencies and said, we'd like you to shut down your unconditional feeding programs and reopen as a conditional feeding program where before you fed them bread, before you fed them, they would sign up for some level of services. And, um, and then we would like you to let us, you know, partner with you with a city official and uh, as part of your organization to help partner and work together and collaborate. Uh, and if you do that, there's quite a bit of funding. We can get federal funding if you shut down unconditional feeding and reopen in a new way. Basically, the city didn't want these organizations to simply feed the homeless. They wanted these organizations to make people sign up for a government service in order to receive food. And so they went to those three organizations and they called me and they said, we'd like you to shut down your, um, your feeding program. And I said, well, uh, 
what? You know, shut down your, uh, you know, uh, shut down your, you know, what you're doing. And, uh, and I said, no, this is our faith. They go, no, this isn't a practice of faith. This is, you're, you're feeding people. This is just, just a soup kitchen. So I said, actually, no, this is our faith. This is how we practice our faith. Our doors are open every day. We, this is how we worship. And there was a disagreement. And uh, I said, I respectfully say, I'm not shutting down. But in a move that surprised Pastor Sam, the other agencies agreed to shut down. And guess where all the homeless came? So all of a sudden, we were now receiving hundreds of homeless to this little church. Hundreds, literally overnight, within 30 days, the numbers went up exponentially. Well, that would have been fine. Harbor was ready for it, but we really haven't described the setting of Harbor Missionary Church. You see, Harbor was located in a very suburban setting in the middle of a neighborhood. So you don't really understand a homeless church in a neighborhood until you see the homeless church in the neighborhood. That's Courtney Kiros. Courtney was a student at Stanford Law School working in Stanford's Religious Liberty Clinic. Since then, she's become a senior associate at Alston and Bird in Atlanta. Pastor Sam's church ultimately needed lawyers. We'll get to that part soon. And Courtney was part of the legal team that worked on his case. We went almost immediately down to meet uh, Sam Gallucci, who was the pastor, and, um, and see the ministry. And it was, it was something. Ventura is as, like, Southern California, like, uh, suburban as you can get, kind of, you know. Um, the church was located in a very residential neighborhood. I mean, it looked like a, like a subdivision, sort of. And I grew up in the city here in Atlanta, and so, you know, as we're driving in, I'm like, oh, it's like a, you know, it's definitely a neighborhood. Like, it's got little neighborhood signs as you, you know, go into this subdivision. And then down one of these little roads was a building that looked like a, you know, small community church. And outside, there were, you know, a number of people gathered. It's California, so a lot of the, like, spaces are open air. So they had a big open, I want to say it was like a patio, like an interior patio. There were people outside talking. There was a lot of laughter. There was music. There was definitely worship. They served food there. It was a full program. Um, Pastor Sam, I think he greeted us by hugging us. I think I was in, like, you know, my first lawyer suit, and, <laughs> and he was, you know, all Southern California and um, talking about Jesus' love in Matthew 25. So this church had grown in a huge way. And of course, because that happened, now being in the center of a neighborhood became more of an issue because these homeless, uh, before we were escorting them in and out, we were picking them up in vans and doing all that. But now uh, it was just overrun by the number, the sheer volume. And they were walking past neighborhoods to get to our church. Well, as a pastor and uh, as a leader, you know that you, you don't refuse somebody that wants to come in your church. My word. There were a few people who came and caused minor disruptions, but Pastor Sam and his volunteers handled it without any harm to the surrounding community. There was a small group of people in the neighborhood that never liked us there, hated what we were doing, but couldn't find a reason to get the city to address anything. And after all, this is the practice of our faith. But when this volume overtook us, it became clear that um, we were now in a situation where um, there was fear of these people. And uh, so I get a call from the city and they go, we're getting complaints about people coming. I go, yeah, well, we're dealing with it. We're addressing it. 
They said, well, after further review, we believe that what you're doing inside the walls of your church is not a religious practice. Therefore, you need a special permit. And it was at that moment that I knew that a line had been crossed. Uh, you know, for a city to decide or to define what is and isn't a religious practice inside the walls of a church, uh, I knew was a line that uh, could not be crossed. And that's what was happening. Pastor Sam knew he was going to need help. So I went to the city with a friend of mine who was our legal counsel, local legal counsel, a good guy. And we, and we pleaded with him. I said, look, you have shut down all these agencies. The good news is, is that we're feeding hundreds a day and it's not costing you a nickel. And you see the results of our program. We have five years of success. Um, let's figure this out. We're willing to work with you. The volume absolutely is overwhelming. Let's figure out a solution. And we'll do anything, uh, anything that you would like, let's, uh, you know, uh, within reason. Just don't ask me to shut down because I'm a church. And the city said, you have to file for a permit. Now I knew I had a, I had a problem. And uh, I went to my brothers, uh, the, the various churches, and I said, I need help. I think I need legal representation. And the Seventh-day Adventist pastor brought me to his uh, divisional offices. And uh, the attorney there said, you know, I, I have a friend, Jim Sani, and they just started a religious liberty clinic at Stanford. And uh, I'm going to put you in touch with him. I'm Jim Sani. I'm the faculty director of the Stanford Religious Liberty Clinic. In 2012, Stanford Law School had opened up the first religious liberty clinic in the country. We are a full-time academic program where students during an academic quarter uh, will enroll in clinic if they apply and are accepted. And for 12 weeks, uh, they learn how to be a lawyer by being a lawyer. They're supervised by faculty. I'm the faculty director. They handle real cases for real clients. Um, and that's how they learn, much as you would in, say, a medical residency or internship. One might think about sort of a legal aid clinic as sort of the classic example. And we are like that. But what, what we do is focus on religious liberty cases. As it turned out, the Religious Liberty Clinic had opened just in time. Pastor Sam needed their help. I remember calling Jim and explaining the situation. And I said, Jim, I need help. I said, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, they have no intention of granting this permit. It was so contentious at the beginning. It was clear to me when we pleaded, let's come up with a solution. They, uh, it was not about a solution. It was about, no, you're, this is not a, a religious practice. What you're doing is not a religious practice. Therefore, uh, you have to file for a permit. The city came to the church and said you need a condition, what's called a conditional use permit, that um, although the city, although the church had uh, the right to operate as a church, um, the city took the position that the homeless ministry needed additional approval or a variance from the zoning rules. And so rather than fight the, the city over that and insist on its rights as a church, the uh church decided to, okay, we'll apply for the, we'll be good citizens and apply for the, for the permit. Stanford came in and the students were amazing students, incredibly bright and generous people and uh, hardworking young men and women, you know, some of the best, I, I think there. And Jim and his legal team were incredible. And um, so they helped us file for the permit. The city responded with a fairly rigorous fact-finding process of reviewing the church's ministry 
um, all aspects of the ministry, reviewing um, some of the neighbor concerns, um, drafting a series of reports, which ultimately ended in, in the professional staff, the city planning staff recommending uh, that the uh, planning commission or the city grant the permit. That seemed like a good sign for the church, but the process was punctuated with public hearings and those got ugly. It had started to become clear that what was driving this was a few vocal neighbors who didn't like what Harbor had become. The church had not always been a homeless ministry, a church with a large homeless ministry. That had that had shifted when Sam had you know come on the scene and when that ministry developed. So there was a difference between a little community church that was open only on Sundays and for an hour, and a kind of full service breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, people hanging out, ministry happening all the time. That's just a different profile for your neighborhood. And you know, with homeless populations can come some unpredictability. I think that the neighbors were responding to people walking in and out of the neighborhood. So the church had tried to come up with some workarounds, driving people to the entrance of the neighborhood instead of letting them sort of walk through the whole neighborhood. You know, obviously there are substance abuse issues that are with all of our population, but in high concentration in certain homeless populations, there was concern about that. And frankly, they're all interested in underlying you know, housing prices, it's California. And if I have a big homeless ministry across the street from me, but like the neighborhood across, around the block doesn't, like my home price is just declined in some way. So, you know, I, I understood that. <laughs> I tend to take on the burdens of my clients and feel them very strongly. I also thought that they, some of them were being very unreasonable and that there was, you know, there's always NIMBYism in these kinds of cases, but it felt... Um, it felt pretty pronounced. NIMBYism. It's an acronym that stands for not in my backyardism. That happens with a lot of religious accommodations. I'm totally fine with a mosque, just not, you know, viewable from my balcony. Um, we see that a lot in religious accommodation cases. I have no problem with this practice, except not anywhere near me and also not visible to me. Not in any way that would affect my children or, you know, my public schools or whatever. During the public hearings, the Planning Commission kept pushing back on the city staff who had initially recommended granting the permit. In an effort to satisfy the Planning Commission, the city staff then started suggesting certain conditions on the permit. Conditions that Pastor Sam wholeheartedly rejected. But they became egregious. One of those conditions were that homeless people had to wear a tag around their, around them that said, I'm homeless. So when they walked down the streets, they had to literally have a tag that said, I'm homeless. Another one was that the city got to see the attendance record of everybody that attended the church. Another one was that you could only have your doors open 30 minutes before uh, your service times, and then you had to deny access to anybody that was late. Well, <laughs> that'd be most of the church. Most people are late at church. <laughs> at the end of the day, there were 58 conditions, and we objected to 12 of them, but always said, but we're willing to work with you. Anyway, the planning commission at the end of the day denied um, the permit, they said, at, at the end of the day, we believe that the work that the Harbor Church does during the week is not a religious practice. It's akin to a laundromat and a fast food restaurant. On the whole, the reasoning of the, of the planning commission was that what the church was doing in terms of its homeless ministry was more akin to social service um, rather than religious activity. And so there should be in, in a different zone 
um, within the city rather than in a residential neighborhood where the church was. Well, the church was not about to give up their ministry. With the Stanford Clinic's help, Pastor Sam's church appealed to city council. Their argument was that this homeless ministry was absolutely a part of their religious practice. So you're before the city council, and they were going to take a vote, the members of the city council that had no interest in the, that I think it was the ones that didn't live in the neighborhood or you know have some other interest in the dispute. We're going to vote. And so we spoke. Um, we had members of the church speak. Sam spoke. Ultimately, there was a vote. It was two to two. <laughs> you might think a tie would mean that there needs to be a tie breaker, but not in this case. Under the city's rules, a tie at this level simply affirmed the decision that the planning commission had already decided to make, not to grant the permit. So when the city council deadlocked two to two uh, and that in effect, meant that the Planning Commission decision denying the permit took immediate effect. We suddenly realized that that would mean that if the church were to open the next day its ministry, it would be out of compliance with the zoning ordinances, the general zoning ordinances, uh, because it didn't have, now it didn't have a permit, um, which in the city's view was required um, to do its ministry. So we realized that right away, um, and wanting to keep the ministry open. The students worked through the night and developed a, a, a great complaint and a preliminary injunction motion. Uh, and I think um, at the crack of dawn, they you know, stayed through the night and then stayed up through the night and then raced down to Ventura or to Los Angeles, I think where the case was filed with bankers boxes of, of pleadings and, you know, filed the case and then went to the city council and, and, and served the council with all the papers uh, that day. So it was, it was kind of an exciting, exhilarating thing for the students to be, you know, in action and um, practicing law, protecting, you know, the immediate rights of their clients. Still, the relief would not be immediate. So at the end of the day, uh, it was in April of 2014, armed police came to the Harbor Church and uh, shut the doors and uh, basically uh, did not allow us to uh, care for over 150 homeless that were coming that day to church. The, uh, the police department of Ventura basically came in, um, walked through before we started and said, this has been shut down and uh, basically put a sign on it and said, you need to lock these doors or you, you know, um, you are in violation of the law. And um, Jim Sani made it really clear to us, if you really want to, you know, um, protect your religious liberty, you have to let them, um, you have to uh, adhere to their bad policy. Because if you don't, then they can sue you for that. And that's, and, and that became the game. And uh, to Jim Sani and his team's credit, they understood the game. The city was out to get this little church. They, for some reason, had determined they didn't want us, they didn't want the work we did, and uh, they were trying to get us to disobey their ordinances so that um, they could sue us and get us into state court. But with his incredible wisdom, we did not succumb to that. They shut us down and uh, we were able to file a case in federal court, a RELUPA case. Ah. RELUPA, the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. It was passed by Congress in 2000. 
to provide special uh, religious liberty protection in two areas, uh, the prisons, uh, so um, protection of, of prisoners and their religious uh, liberty rights, uh, as well as uh, land use protections. RELUPA is like its sister bill, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA. Under RIFRA and RELUPA, if the government has burdened somebody's religious practice, the government has to prove that it's got a compelling interest in doing that, and that this is the least restrictive way that they can achieve that compelling interest. So the Stanford students got to work filing a lawsuit. At the heart of it was the need to make very clear that the church's ministry was not simply a social service. It was a key part of these Christians practicing their faith. Because, you see, the city continued to insist that they weren't actually burdening the church's religious practice at all, that the ministry wasn't part of their religious practice. We wanted to include a lot of scripture in the brief, because as we were talking about earlier, we wanted to um, sort of signal to the judge that he or she did not have all the information just based on the description. Like this is, you know, it's a Christian church and they say this about, you know, homeless ministry. We wanted them to read the passages of scripture that um, Harbor had identified for us as their sort of guiding posts and let them see that, you know, they may or may not read that same scripture the same way. We needed to kind of open up their understanding of that. So I remember working really carefully on that brief. Because what we had a lot in the public hearings was people would stand up and they would say, well, I'm a Christian too, and I don't think that that means. And then they would explain their understanding of what you know a Christian ministry meant around homelessness or poverty. And that was fundamentally different than the way that you know, Harbor itself and Sam, the pastor, understood their community and, and what, you know, God was calling them to. And you can you can run into that in religious liberty cases where if you have someone who's ostensibly of the same faith or identifies in the same way, but has a different interpretation, that they think that that somehow that trumps someone else's deeply held, sincerely held religious belief. And so that's, you know, that's tricky. Sometimes you have to kind of point out what we don't know. So put a lot of scripture in there. And as you know, um, when you read scripture, two sound minds can come to very different conclusions. Some of that is, you know, really helpful, I think, in briefing. In July 2014, Jim Sonny and his students went to federal district court to make their case. Pastor Sam was there, too. Jim Sonny starts to talk about Relupa, and the judge goes, where in the Bible does it say that churches care for the homeless? Now, that caught him flat-footed. That called, caught all of us flat-footed. Are you kidding me? A, a, a judge, a federal judge, going to interpret a sacred text of a religious organization. Really? You know, and that's what he did. And I explained that uh, the church understands Matthew 25 and the command of Jesus to serve the least of these as, as its call. And the judge challenged me to provide support for that. And so I actually said, like, read it? As I recall, and the judge said, yeah, read it. I said, and so I was at council table with all my notes and my cases and everything else, and I had to say, turn to the gallery and said, does anyone have a Bible? And so fortunately, our client had one in his pocket, uh, the pastor of the church, and handed it to me, and I read Matthew 25 in court. And Jim Sani is reading from the Bible. Uh, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, and so forth. Whatever you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you've done unto me. And the judge, said, the judge says, it doesn't say homeless. 
And, uh, and we looked at each other and could not believe what came out of his mouth. It was just like, Constitution be damned. I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. And although that was, uh, in our view, um, not the way courts should address the issue, certainly as, an, as a former appellate lawyer, I had in the back of my mind, well, I guess we might be going to the Ninth Circuit <laughs> if that's the way it's going to be approached. And to no one's surprise, that's what happened. The district court judge denied their motion. We had a debrief meeting with Jim and the students, and, and, and it was really a difficult time. We were so discouraged. I was very discouraged. My team was discouraged. After we lost the preliminary injunction, we filed an immediate appeal to the Ninth Circuit, and we did that together uh, with Horvitz and Levy, who are good friends of the clinic, and um, they're California's top appellate law firm. Before the Ninth Circuit issued an opinion, they first directed the city and the church to try to come to a settlement, but the city just wasn't interested. On February 2nd, 2015, Jim Sani, the Stanford students, and the lawyers from Horvitz and Levy went to court. This case had now gone on for three years. At oral arguments, the city's argument that the ministry wasn't part of the church's religious practice didn't seem to go so well. At the uh, Ninth Circuit, First judge says, uh, you, know, in my, uh, you know, in my parish, we care for the poor all the time. It's absolutely a religious practice. And then uh, the next judge uh, goes, uh, at our presbytery, we have a, a, a food pantry. We're giving food out all the time. And then the third one said, at temple, uh, <laughs> it's a religious practice that uh, you're damned if you don't care for the poor and the homeless. And they all said, what's wrong with you, city? Just like that. And all of a sudden, the city was on its heels. And these three judges are like, are you guys crazy? You know, and uh, you're not working with them. And then they, they tried to, and they go, so why didn't you relocate them? Well, we gave them these zones uh, that they could, and they go, I'm not talking about zones, the boogeyman up in space. Did you give them a specific location that they could move to? And there was silence. After the arguments, all Pastor Sam could do was wait. I was sitting in my office. We uh, we had been shut down now for a year. And uh, so it was a really damaging time. The church had been decimated. Um, we had lost a lot of supporters. Um, obviously, you know, uh, 800 members of our community, homeless, couldn't come to church, wouldn't come to church. They were scared. They were frightened. And we just had this small community that stayed with us. And it, we were on life support. It was a very difficult time for us. It was. It was awful. It was a real awful time. So we lost a lot of momentum. Um, we were almost on the, on the verge of folding. On March 14th, 2016, the Ninth Circuit decision came down unanimously in favor of Harbor Church. And said that the district court got it wrong, that in fact, um, splitting the ministry would constitute a substantial burden on religious exercise, that the church's self-understanding of what it was doing is recognized by law that homeless ministry is a protected form of religious uh, exercise, religious land use, uh, and therefore the government must show it had a compelling interest and that, you know, this is the only way to address this interest would be, in this case, rejecting the permit, which the court said was not the only way and in fact cited the city staff's own recommendations for granting the permit as a basis for holding that, in fact, there were other ways to address this. 
in reversing the district court on that point, the Ninth Circuit made clear uh, and cited cases from other courts, as well as I think the Supreme Court, that uh, it's not the job of courts to assess uh, whether or not a particular religious believer or religious communities view um, is correct or not, their interpretation of scripture, any of those questions, but whether or not they're sincere. Um, That's the only job of the court. And so uh, when we got this opinion, uh, we just basically sat in my office, started weeping, thanking God that, you know, justice could be served. And yeah, I remember it. It was a very difficult time. And, um, and um, uh, it was a very dark time. And, um, and I thought to myself, you know, this, you know, at the end, what really got me through it was thinking of my Lord Jesus, who died on a cross and he was rejected by men. You know, and here God's love came and it was rejected by the very people that he came to save. And so that kept me going. But it was a very difficult time. But I, I remember hearing that news and and uh, and really it was really encouraging. And um, all of a sudden, for the first time, the city came to the table to try to negotiate a settlement. Even though the church had won at the Ninth Circuit, the resolution that the city and the church came to led them in a different direction. And so we, we really had a choice, you know, um, we could stay there, we could have reopened, but then all of a sudden, you know, it became an issue for us of representing Christ well. And, and Jesus talked about that, you know, turning the other cheek. And uh, he, he talked about um, when you are rejected in one town, you know, brush the dust off and go to the next town. And we felt for the sake of the gospel, the sake of Christ, um, that we would leave peacefully. The downside, and I think this is probably true in a lot of litigation scenarios, and certainly was important for our students to see, uh, was that even if that was the logical best case scenario to settle the lawsuit that in moving on from the dispute uh, you know who are left behind but the homeless that were being served at that particular church and so even though the law can provide remedies and you know litigants have rights to be vindicated there's oftentimes a human toll um, even in victory And what's so unfortunate is that all of this could have been avoided if the city had simply worked in good faith with the church. This case also shows that these issues, and hopefully the next time something like this comes along, and it has in other jurisdictions, you know, should be addressed by the first instance by the city in partnership with the church and try and reach a a solution that works for everyone. The courts are a blunt instrument uh, to get this done. Um, I think another uh, lesson is just appreciating the various constituencies and understanding that uh, you know any religious liberty dispute, um, there are legitimate interests on all sides. Both Jim and Courtney think that Pastor Sam's case can be a guide and a source of hope for others who find themselves in similar situations. 
you're not alone. People do face this. People do win cases like this. I mean, it seems insurmountable. I think that Sam could have said, okay, this is too hard. I'm not doing this work here. You know, a, a lesser man may have done that and said, I'm not fighting this out. It's years long. It's extremely taxing personally. And, you know, we're talking about an, you know, an organization. He had the support of other people who believed in that organization. Sometimes we're talking about individuals. That's really hard. It's really hard to weather these things. There are a lot of pitfalls. And even though you have rights and the law is there to protect you, uh, it's really important to have good legal counsel. Uh, by your side to walk you through those to actually oftentimes engage with the lawyers for the for municipality or the staff for municipality to share with them that there are these protections in the law. We asked Pastor Sam what he would say to someone else who found himself in a similar position. If you face these things, know that you're not alone. Not only do you have God with you, but you have uh, other brothers in other parts of this country that have also been through this. And, and lastly, I would tell them that um, uh, your stand not only is, 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 will help you, but it's a calling to help many after you, that you have the great privilege to help um, in future generations that are followers of your faith. Ralupa was the reason this case ended in a victory. The Stanford Religious Liberty Clinic's law students got the opportunity of a lifetime briefing and arguing at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. But what of Pastor Sam's ministry? Well, while they'd been litigating their case, their homeless ministry was shut down. But donations kept coming in, which meant that they had piles of food and nowhere to give it. That's when a new member of the church said, Hey, Pastor Sam, my mother lives in a mobile home park in Oxnard. People there are starving. Can we bring this food over? We rolled into Oxnard, rolled into this mobile home park, which I've driven on this road many times uh, and never saw this park before. It was kind of hidden. Hundreds of people from hundreds of mobile homes came to Pastor Sam's van to get food. And I look to this, uh, this member of our congregation. I go, Louie, who are these people? And they go, Pastor. These are the undocumented migrants in our town. And it just hit me. And I remember hearing the voice of God, do you love me, feed my sheep? Reach the disenfranchised, the rejected, the forgotten. That's been the call of our church, that is our call. And uh, so I said, well, what if I set up tables and chairs outside and bring food and, and share about Jesus to them? And that's what we did. Thank you to Pastor Sam Gallucci, Jim Sonne, and Courtney Kiros for granting us interviews for this episode. Music in this episode, courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions and Jay Tibbetts. Our theme music was composed by Eric McNerney. Beckett is a nonprofit public interest law firm dedicated to defending religious freedom for all. Our clients have included Amish, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Zoroastrians. For more information on RIFRA, our work, and Stream of Conscience, visit our website at beckettlaw.org or follow us on social media. 